excuse me. <clears throat> Hello. Hey, John. How are you? Oh, hello, Dan. How are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm doing pretty swell. Pretty swell. How about yourself? Oh, doing just fine. I can't complain. Cannot complain. Well, well, shucky darn. That's pretty great. I mean, I could could complain, but who would listen? Well, I would listen, Dan, but why would we want to break our aloha with complaining? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So, although I don't know about break, I don't know if you can break an aloha or break aloha, but, but, uh, but yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's not complain. Let's, let's rejoice. I'm wearing an aloha shirt today. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Do you find that, um, I have a lot uh, of those. Do you find that, that aloha shirts bring you appreciative looks? out in the world? Um, not really. No, I wouldn't say that I really notice a difference. Um, ever. Do you notice, do you notice appreciative looks? Do you notice when, uh, when you catch someone's eye? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, but I don't think the shirt leads to any of that. I see. Nor does it, uh, I don't, I don't see, uh, diminishing looks either. No one scowls at you. No, I think it's very normal to wear them here. So I don't think that people necessarily even really notice them all that much. Sure. Sure. My friends, if if I, yeah, I mean, if I see a friend and it's a, it's a particularly nice Aloha shirt, they may say, Oh, I like your shirt, but strangers aren't like approaching me and complimenting me on on really anything ever. Do you think that you communicate aloha in the world when you're out there? I my goal is to communicate nothing. But oh. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I want to be I want to I learned in high school that it it was I was better off if I appeared to to be uh as as under the radar and normal as possible uh-huh. because if you come out if you're like a like a 6 foot 5 big guy with fun hair and glasses and crazy outfits and dressed like a dandy and cool hats and sometimes a cape sure you're setting a bar for yourself and you're also putting yourself in the spotlight and in a way, what I think that does is that has to like, you have to deliver on that at all times. And then if for some reason you have that off day or you're a little tired or you're preoccupied with something and you don't deliver it, then people will come to you and say, tall person, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. There's something wrong. There's some, you're, you're, you're off today and I can tell it. Well, how could you tell that? Because you weren't singing and dancing and and wearing the crazy shirt, whereas if you appear for all intents and purposes to just be like everyone else, you're just a nondescript. I think the guy might have had brown hair. Right. Then you're under the radar. And then when you do something even slightly extraordinary, uh, which is the best I think people can hope for, then people will really notice because it's like, where, where did that come from? 
they didn't see me coming, you know, mm. you're, you're, you're a, a surprise. And so I, I no longer shaved my head into a mohawk and, and stopped wearing, you know, combat boots and all black all the time and started dressing like a square and it served me well. Would you say that you were someone who uh, would like defy a description to the police? <laughs> it's like last time you asked me if, you know, if I would be interested, if I, you know, what I would do in prison or how I would get there. I don't really think much about the police. What do you mean? Like if someone was describing me and they would say, what did he look like? And well, he was like a guy. Had, no, I think people would be able to identify me because I don't outside of like New York or Philadelphia or a Northeast Boston, maybe most people don't look like me here. But, but like, do you think in Texas they would say he was an Arab guy? Definitely not. Um, you don't, I don't Hispanic, think Hispanic, right? Definitely not Hispanic. Um, when I was a young, since you asked, when I was a young boy, about 10 years old, I spent so much time outside, outdoors, and especially at, at the beach uh, and snorkeling and other things like that, that my complexion, I had such a, a, a lovely tan all the time uh, that people often did think that maybe I was Hispanic. And, they, and I, I know this because they would approach me and speak Spanish to me oh. on a very regular basis. Um, but after I stopped doing that, my complexion returned to its more, I guess, pale, slightly olive complexion uh, that now I'm never confused as that. I've never, no one has ever directly to me thought that I was uh, of Arab descent or has ever asked me if I was, or has ever assumed that um, most people who would ask that kind of question as correctly assumed that I was of Jewish ethnicity. Uh, sometimes I've gotten people who thought maybe I was, I've, I've heard Greek once oh, or twice, Greek, okay, All but right. I don't think I have the nose for that. Yeah. Um, but uh, never, never our Arab. No one never thought pa Palestinian. You have a kind of no, you could, could be no. Palestinian. No, no, I don't. I could. I, I guess I could see that if I had the right garb on. Maybe I Lebanese. I, you know. I could see someone yeah. saying that you were Lebanese. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. But uh, I like you know I like to to go as under the radar as possible. I don't right. want to. I don't want you know. Ideally, someone would say, well, "What? What? You know." The guy that just walked by, what did he look like? I'm not, I'm not really sure. He, he had glasses, I think, and maybe he was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the most. That's the most anyone would. No, I, I, uh, I sympathize with that, um, with that stratagem, uh, of of uh, of remaining mysterious, oblique. The guy, he's just the guy. No mm. one can, uh, no one can know your inner life. My mom, right. my mom lived that way. She, um, she had a lot of queer beliefs, but in public, she always presented as, uh, as normal as possible. Right. And, um, and anything that called attention to her, um, 
she, you know, she didn't, she didn't want any, um, surveillance, uh, no. you know, even, even the most basic level of people turning their heads to take note. Uh, she preferred to really like be a submarine mm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, she and I had a lot of, we had, we had some, some major conflict, some, some, some encounters, uh, when I was in high school, when it became apparent to her that I was following a different path in life and by calling attention to myself, I was calling attention to her mm. and she felt very threatened and very, uh, she was upset and confused and gave me a couple of stern lectures to the effect of what you were just saying, like never call attention to yourself, always maintain your lowest possible profile. Uh, that way, you know, they'll never, that way they won't know, they won't know what, that you're a heretic. Right. And I was like, well, I'm not worried about them knowing I'm a heretic. That ship has sailed. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we went back and forth in it, and uh, several times in high school, when I got my name in the newspaper a couple of times, it horrified her because. Oh uh, meant- yeah, you've mentioned that to me, right? Because this this was bringing tremendous. Well, how does she feel now, though? <clears throat> well, we had a we we went back and forth, back and forth. Um, she got used to the idea that I was going to get my name in the newspaper as a performer, right? as a, you know, as a public person. She didn't like it in high school because it meant that her coworkers could read the article and could know about her son and the fact that she existed in the world outside of work. Right. But none of the stuff that was written about me in the newspapers in high school was, was very penetrating. It was just newspaper articles about, you know, hey, kid does something. <laughs> but but when I got, uh, and so throughout the like early indie rock years, I think she was proud that there were occasionally little, little articles about me. But then um, I turned a corner and there was a big feature article on me where I talked about my childhood and my life. Uh, right. And that was the one and I was third in my thirties. That was the one that just shook her to the core. She felt so exposed and so, mm. um, you know, like like I had just ripped all the curtains down out of her house and put it in the newspaper for all to see. Mm-hmm. It just went against everything. It went against every practice uh, that she'd adhered to her entire life. And, uh, and we had, you know, I'm kind of major confrontation where I said, look, this is how it's going to be from now on, unless you tell me no. And if you say, don't, if you say you cannot bear me revealing my inner life and my, and, you know, just describing my life in the world, I won't, but let me tell you, it will be it will be inhibiting my process to 
or inhibiting my desire and my motivation, my, uh, my purpose here, mm-hmm. like to such a degree that it would be the equivalent of telling me to stop playing guitar. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I know you don't want me to do that. I know you don't want me to stop playing guitar. I know you don't want to inhibit me. So you need to think, or you need to reflect on the fact that this is part of what I'm, what I do. And boy, I, you know, to her credit, she sat and, and chewed on it. And she tried a couple of things like, well, what if you just never mentioned me? And I was like, impossible. She said, well, what if, you know, you just talked about your music? And I was like, that won't work either. Mm-hmm. And eventually she came around to it. And I, you know, I think that she has listened to a few podcasts, but it's, uh, it's hard for her to do because I think she doesn't like to not get the references and she, you know, she doesn't, um, she's not sure how to go all the way back and follow along all the, Oh yeah. Yeah. And, but I think she reconciled to the idea that it wasn't, it didn't represent a threat to her somehow that I was able to manage it. And, uh, I don't, I, I still don't think that she feels liberated by it. She said to me many times, uh, that she wants no funeral service of any kind. And I've said to her every time she says it, funeral services are for the living. They have nothing to do with you. You're dead already. (laughs) What do you care? Right. And she's like, just do me this one solid and don't <laughs> have a funeral for me. Well, I mean, what do you do? You kind of have to obey <clears throat> or respect her wishes, right? Like it's her, it's her funeral, literally, if when it happens, hopefully not for a while, but what yeah, do but you what, do? I mean, what are Susan and I supposed to do? Our mom dies and everybody's like, oh no. And we go, yeah, well. Anyway, you you blame it on her. You say, listen, she, she requested that we not do a thing and, and I want to do a thing, but I'm going to honor her. I'm going to respect her wishes, even though I don't want to. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. I mean, because what constitutes like, what if Susan and I go to dinner? Is that a funeral? I don't know. You know? My dad had, you know, I, I, I did a big funeral for him because I knew that's what he wanted. And I knew that's what, I mean, he never said that that's what he wanted, but I, you just know my dad would have, you know, my dad wanted a parade, Yeah, but, but also it was that his friends wanted it. You know, that's the world that they lived in, but yeah, my mom doesn't, she wants no memorial. So I, I don't know. I don't know how much, um, I'm not even sure that she's aware how much I transitioned into a um, an autobiographer. Um, how much of that is a part of of what I make in the world, right? And you know, I I know that she knows that she's a character in my stories, uh, and I think that she realizes that I, that it's a flattering portrait. Um, because I tell her, you know, that people, 
when people comment, like, I wish John's mom was here to solve this problem for me. I tell her about those, uh, those communications and she always chuckles and, and mm-hmm. seems pleased, but boy, she, she, uh, she didn't get her or she didn't, she didn't achieve her early goal of passing through life and leaving no, no trace of her passage. We would like to say thank you very much to open fit. You know why? Cause getting fit and staying healthy, it always sounds easier uh, than it winds up being right. Well, it shouldn't be that way. And open fit thinks it shouldn't be that way. And they're bringing you something new that makes it even easier to never miss a workout lose the commute to the gym and let the workouts come to you. It's genius telling you they take all the complexity out of losing weight and getting fit. And they have a brand new, super simple streaming service. It allows you to work out from the comfort of your own living room in as little as 10 minutes a day. And you know why you should try this because everybody's different, right? Open fit understands that our bodies are not all the same. So it's personalized to your needs with a custom tailored original program. They've got amazing trainers and classes, uh, some of the most effective and engaging trainers in the whole world. It's super simple. You don't have to worry about uh, uh, like getting going somewhere even. like You could do this all at your own house on your own schedule. Your own schedule, whenever you want. Works on, <clears throat> on your computer. Works on your uh, web-enabled TV, on your tablet, on your smartphone. You got a Roku, works on that. And you can lose up to 15 pounds in just the first 30 days. Wouldn't that be nice? I use this because the fact is I have two kids. I run a couple businesses. It's not always easy to get to the gym. And sometimes this is better than going to the gym because you can get these really great personalized programs. There, stuff you wouldn't get if it's just you in a gym trying to look at the machines and figure out what you're supposed to do next. Just change the way that I work out. And uh, I want you to try this too. Use the code roadwork roadwork. And, uh, you're going you're gonna to get a special extended 30-day free trial membership. And again, keep in mind, you could lose 15 pounds in 30 days. So here's what you do. Take the promo code ROADWORK I gave you and you text it to 303030303030. This is the way it works. It's not a website to go to. This is how you get started with this. Text ROADWORK to 303030 on your phone. You'll get full access to OpenFit, all the workouts, all the nutritional information, totally free Again, just text roadwork to 303030 and uh, get in shape. Thanks very much to Open Fit for making this show possible. But you, you, uh, you want to appear neutral in the world, but you certainly broadcast your voice and your personality into the world pretty, pretty prominently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, but that's fine. Um, yeah. But I don't, I don't need, when I was young, I very much wanted to like be the person that everyone knew and be associated with like, Oh, like have you, you know, like Dan is doing a cool thing or, Oh, is Dan here? You know, like that, like that mattered to me when I was younger and it, uh, it doesn't matter to me at all. Now it's, it's much easier if I'm, uh, if I'm not, you know, and it's fine. It's fine for me to do stuff on the air like this, like make a podcast or do videos or whatever. But I don't like, I don't thrive by being in the spotlight in real life. Like I want the things that I do 
especially the things that I'm doing with the intent of having them be out there, like in the world and having people be, you know, use those things. Like I made fireside because I want, of course I want people to use that. We make a podcast. I want people to listen, but that to me is like within the context of the thing that I'm making and not it's hard to explain, but like, I don't, I don't need to be that in my personal life. I don't need to be the center of attention or the life of the party or anything like that. Not that I ever was, but I definitely don't need that. Uh, certainly not now. Maybe when I was like up into my early twenties, that mattered to me. And I think at some point it, like my focus isn't really on me the way that it used to be. And maybe having kids changed that for me. I don't know. It's interesting though, because I just, I feel very, very differently about that kind of thing. But I very much remember in high school, dressing the way I dressed or looking the way that I looked brought a lot of attention. Most of it is attention that I realized later that I really didn't want. You know, it was, it was a, it, not that it was negative attention, but I, I didn't, I I didn't like drawing too much attention to myself because then you have, you were like, you're almost like forced to engage with people at all times. If you have a certain look or a thing going, people kind of respond to that. And I would rather them respond to me for other reasons than the kind of clothes that I'm wearing or the way I shave my hair or whatever. Yeah. It's not like I'm closed off to people. I'm not. I mean, I, if someone, I love, I love meeting new people and I love talking to people. Would you say you were flirty? No, not anymore. But I mean, uh, flirty in the sense of, of, um, not just flirty with, uh, with women, but flirty in, in a kind of, um, in a social way when you, when I know, you what, go you, into I know a shop. what you're getting at. Uh, yeah, probably still. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on the mood. You know, there's a lot of time I just want to get in and get out. Right. You know, uh, but if I'm on like one of those days where I'm like, well, I, I have some time to like really engage in the world and look around and, and be a real human being for a little while, then yeah, definitely. Definitely. Then I, then I love that. Then I love to, to do that. But it seems like you, you make time for that all the time. I would guess. It seems like you, that's your MO. Yeah. Even when I'm in a hurry, I take the time to make the fact that I'm in a hurry part of the game of conversation with the mm. other person. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I would never just be like, thank you. I would always be like, well, I'm really in a hurry today. Got a lot going on. So just, uh, otherwise, you know, I'd pull up a chair here, but, but, uh, herp derp got a bunch of, got a bunch of things on my plate. You know, like I'm, I would always make it into a, some kind of conversational gambit, not as a way to rush the other person, but just as a way to check in with them as a human being and say like, what do you got going on today? Well, I'm busy. Right. Uh, there's almost never a time when I go into any kind of interaction with somebody where I'm just curt because I don't want to engage. Um, 
because I because I've got something on my mind or I'm I'm bummed or you know I, I'm I'm capable of going through a commercial transaction or a or an encounter with somebody on the street where I'm just like at a neutral energy level mm-hmm. where I just say please and thank you but but never you know you know I never just I would have to be so mad to so mad or so tired to encounter a person that's unrelated to my madness or tiredness and give them mad or tired energy in public. You know what I mean? Like if I'm mad and somebody comes up and says, have you heard the good news? I would never, or very, very rarely would I go, no, you know, like to turn, to turn that energy on somebody that was unrelated to the cause of it. I would always be like, Oh, the good news, Jesus, (laughs) you know, and that's just, I don't know what that is. I I don't somehow the, the, the social grace is always separate from, from whatever my like personal mood is. It feels more like a, um, you know, it's like when I'm mad, I don't stop obeying traffic lights either. Well, you don't obey them anyway. Well, right. I don't obey them (laughs) any less. Um, because I'm angry. I don't (laughs) like, (laughs) right. (coughs) You keep, you keep the lid on, you keep it under, under control. But we've talked before about being flirty and yeah. uh, if I do have time, if I have all the time in the world, oh my God, I'm I'm just incorrigible. I can see that. I can see how you'd, you'd be like that. Yeah, I mean, it is in a lot of ways, it is a time thing, you know? But I think there's also, you're kind of setting a certain kind of expectation as well. If you If you sort of like have a personality that people know about, then they they kind of expect to see that. Like, and I don't, I don't know, I've met you in person and there's been times where it was just you and me or just you and me and a, a couple other people. And you're the same. You're, you don't, you don't seem, no, there, you seem different depending like on the time of day, how close to the time that it, you woke up. We've done shows where we recorded later in the afternoon and uh, you were a bit different than you are like when you've just woken up, which is when we are usually recording. And mm-hmm. I think that's normal for most people, but mm-hmm. cons- even with those small differences, you're, you're pretty much, you're kind of the same whenever I, whenever I uh, see you or hang out with you or talk with you, you're, you're the same. Uh-huh. And I respect that. I like that. And I think that's, I think people would say that about me too, is that, you know, it doesn't really matter whether I'm on the air, whether we're just sitting around, like there are certain things I wouldn't say on the air because maybe they're too personal or maybe they're, I don't want them to be around forever in posterity on some podcast I made in 2019. You know what I mean? Like, sure. I try not to curse very much when I'm recording something. I might curse more in person, but I'm the same. Like, you're not going to meet me in person. Like, hey, I mean, <laughs> but I do, I do know people that are like that. I do know people that have like a, a persona that they put on for their, 
performance of whatever kind it is that they're, you know, they're perform, they're perf- they have a personality that they wear for a certain performance or something like that. Yeah. And I don't, I try, well, I wouldn't say I try not to do that, but I don't think I do that. And like, if you listen to me on this show or the show I do with Merlin or an interview show I did or a video that I made or whatever, like I'm the same, I'm not really holding back or changing it or trying to say, oh, well, on this show with John, I play this role. So I'm going to do, th- I don't really, I don't try to do that, but I know people that do that. And I don't understand why they do that. Like if I listen to somebody on one podcast and then find out they're going to be on another podcast, I expect to get the same overall aspect of their personality. And then when they're different, I'm like, well, why don't they do more of that on the other show? That was great. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, uh, at some point as a creative person, I realized that what I, what my goal was, was to integrate everything I did and my own self and personality into a single bubble, like music, uh, hosting events, uh, podcasting, me walking down the street, me with my daughter, uh, on a sunny Sunday. Um, me with my mom, all of those things had to be the same person. Right. Otherwise I, otherwise I wasn't going to, uh, I wasn't going to be good. Um, every time I tried to write in a voice that I thought was a writerly or make music in a voice that I thought was um, was rock. I felt like a fraud mm-hmm. and I felt like what I was making wasn't good. Like it, it wasn't just that I was a fraud. It was that I, that, that, that I wasn't making th- things that had quality. And so I needed to, you know, it's, it's not necessarily natural to write in your speaking voice or to write in your own voice. Right. It's, it's a thing that takes practice, particularly if you grow up reading authors that have a mannerly voice or an edgy voice. Um, so you, you know, you, you read Bukowski or Hemingway and you think like, Oh, I'm going to write in this like clipped (laughs) sort of no, no, uh, no adjectives manner. Um, and so it took, it took me a while to, to practice that, to go through that, to write, uh, in that way, to write in a way that, uh, was real flashy and flamboyant, which I also did before I realized I just needed to, to figure out how I talk and how I think and then learn how to write that way. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, it, in a way it's like uh, what they say about lying. Don't, if you never lie, you never have to remember anything. Like I don't have to remember in a way. I don't even have to remember where I am because if I'm on stage or, or I'm, uh, or I'm talking to my own mother, 
I don't, I don't really, I don't even really turn up the volume. I was watching, what was I, I was watching, oh, I was watching Star Wars. I, sh- I, I showed Star Wars to my daughter and I realized how broadly Harrison Ford is acting uh, Han Solo. Like, you think of him as deadpan or as low affect or as like Mr. Cool. Mm-hmm. But if you watch his face, like he really is contorting it into all of those like jaunty sneers and his like spit takes and stuff where, where Chewbacca goes, oh, and he turns <laughs> around and goes, Oh, you know, laugh it up fuzzball. Like right. his face is really acting. And, in a way that he's probably not. He's probably when he's when he's at home in Montana with um, with um, his wife, whose name escapes me. Uh, Callista Flockhart. Callista Flockhart. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he is. You know, I mean, actually, we see it in his later films when he's playing the president of the United States or whatever. When he's playing the uh, all these like hard bitten long suffering heroes. He kind of just frowns through the entire movie. He doesn't light up his face the way he did in, in star Wars. Like he never, you know, when he's uh, Jack Ryan, he doesn't really smile that much. And, uh, and I think that my instinct or my, my, the way that I use my face, I don't really light it up that much. Even when I'm really having a great time, even when I'm on stage, even when I'm trying to project that I'm in a great mood or that we're all having a great time, I never learned to turn my emotions on, on my face. And it, and it's uncomfortable for me to put a big smile on my face or to, you know, raise my eyebrows in in exaggerated surprise. Mm. I don't walk around smiling. I, I think the one way in which I'm like you, like what you're describing in terms of not uh, wearing flashy shirts is that I don't put a lot of flashy feeling on my face and I regret it. I regret that I didn't learn to do that because I was, I was struck when, when, when Eddie Vedder first came out on the music scene and you saw those early music videos and he had that singing style where his mouth was really open. Yeah. Like, like, open in a kind of almost like a rigor uh, m- mouth where it was just like you couldn't, it couldn't be more open and it felt, it seemed like he was, yeah, like a death smile almost. And it was, it was easily, it was easily kind of mocked in that early time because if you compare it to Kurt Cobain, Kurt Cobain is right up on the microphone and although his voice sounds like he's just really screaming. If you look at him, he's kind of, his face is pretty passive. He's making all that 
music with his throat but and his lungs, but he's not you don't see it on Kurt Cobain's face. Mm. Um, you do see it on Chris Cornell's face, but you really see it on Eddie Vedder's face. And, and, and it was, um, at, at the time I was like, why is he doing that? Like, that's kind of grotesque. But then I realized later that if you open your mouth, if you, if you smile while you're singing, and I mean a big smile mm-hmm. while you're singing, your voice improves. Everything about it improves. Mm. The the clarity of what you're singing, the articulateness, the tone, it all becomes sharper. And That's I mean, interesting. And I don't mean musically sharp. I mean it becomes more defined and more and clearer and cleaner. And I was somebody that was always singing with my with my face pretty relaxed. I mean, I, I would, when I had to hit the high notes, I would, uh, you could see it in my neck. And, and as time went on, I learned that I needed to turn my face on in order to hit the notes that I was trying to hit and in order to communicate the emotion I was trying to communicate. So, so when you see pictures of me singing, I, my face is involved, but it doesn't look happy. It looks like I'm in a lot of pain, I think, or at least a lot of struggle. Hmm. If you look at pictures of me singing, you know, big, big notes, it looks like I am in. You're in, pained. I'm in turmoil. Yeah. Right. We would like to say thank you very much to HelloFresh. That's right. HelloFresh. This is a meal kit delivery service. They shop, they plan. And they deliver step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so that people like us, we can just cook and eat and enjoy. Isn't that what life is about? Enjoying good things, having a nice meal with your family, not stressing about where you're going to find the food and what amount you need. And is it going to be fresh and is all of that? You don't have to worry about any of that. I mean, and this is what they do. The HelloFresh does all the meal planning, shopping and prepping so that you can focus on making your family healthier and happier. All meals come together in 30 minutes tops, okay? Some of them are way less than that, but it's only 30 minutes. And you can do this with your other family members, get your kids involved like I do. And and if you have kids that are like picky eaters, first of all, they have... Uh, They have kid-tested and approved family plan recipes. So start with those. But if you have kids like mine who don't want to try anything new sometimes, get them involved, you know? Get them involved in the cooking process. It's more fun. They get to appreciate it. And then they'll eat it because they made it. And, you know, almost all the recipes call for less than two pots and pans. There's minimal cleanup because I I hate the cleanup. And uh, you know what? We all get into like a recipe rut. You can get out of that and start cooking outside of your comfort zone and discover new and delicious recipes. I really, really appreciate HelloFresh because it, it's stupid to say it, but like the stuff is really fresh. Like it shows up and it, it, it's fresher a lot of the time than what I can get at the local store. And I don't have to worry about, oh, well, did I forget to get this thing or did I get the wrong amount? It's genius. And you're going to get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh by going to HelloFresh.com slash Roadwork80. 
80, roadwork80, right? Because you're getting 80 bucks off. So hellofresh.com slash roadwork80. But you have to use the promo code roadwork80. And, and this is like receiving eight meals for free. So you're going to get uh, $20 off your first four boxes. Hellofresh.com slash roadwork80. And promo code is roadwork. Thanks, HelloFresh. <coughs> but when you see people that learned to walk into the world with an open and engaged, active face where their eyes are open and, and ready and their mouth is poised in a smile and ready to break into a big smile if given any opportunity. And, uh, and they, and they register what they're hearing and what they're, and what they're seeing and how they're feeling on their face. I admire them so much because it's so much more, because I think it does affect your emotions. I think if you walk out with a smile on your face, you feel better. Absolutely. Feel better. If your eyes, if your eyebrows are up and your eyes are, are on, you just feel better. Everything feels better. I'm sitting here right now with my eyebrows up and I feel better. And so how to have, how to have missed that. And I think what I, what I taught myself was that a neutral face, a face that's, that's turned off is a form of protection you feel safer, you feel guarded. And I do a thing when people turn a camera on me or when people are looking around a room and they see me across the room and they go, hey, it's you. And I do that thing where I, I look directly at them, but I don't change my facial expression. Uh-huh. And internally, I think I'm being funny. Like internally, I'm... Um, I'm being funny or, or, or even I feel like I'm being intimate with them because I'm looking at them all the way across a crowded dance floor and I'm making a, uh, I'm making that really close in connection with them through my eyes. Like a, like in a way, not acknowledging them. It's almost like I'm saying, I see you. I'm. I'm with you across this great space. Right. But from their perspective, I don't know how it's received. I don't know if, you know, I, I would suspect that people are like, does he see me sometimes? But, but looking at a lot of photographs of myself taken with fans or, you know, taken out in the world, um, my, my face is, is often, neutral or or about 10% on mm. compared to like if you're if you're real if your face is just really on and you know like busy phillips her face is just on uh all the time and she can take photos where where she turns it off or turns it down but what it would take now, and the thing is, my teeth have always plagued me. When I was a little kid, I slipped in the bathtub and I knocked out my front tooth. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I still smiled, big smile with my missing tooth. I was very proud of my missing tooth. 
But when my tooth came in, my adult tooth, it was damaged. Mm-hmm. It was either because damaged. Of, because of the, the trauma of hitting the baby tooth that it damaged the adult tooth? Well, there were a couple of theories. It was either that. My mom's theory was that I had a, that I had a really powerful fever when I was a baby and that that affected oh, the tooth. Interesting. But the tooth that's missing, and that tooth actually is missing now. It fell out a couple of months ago, and I still haven't gotten it fixed. Um, that tooth, when it came in, uh, was discolored. It had a little vein of gold running through it. And it, and it really, it read as a kind of, I mean, it's hard for me to know how it read because it was how that tooth always was when I was a child. It just had mm-hmm. a little mark on it. And I, it's not that I wasn't proud of it. I was kind of proud of it because when I was a kid, I was all about, um, things like that. Like I have a special tooth. I was born on, on Friday the 13th. So I am a wizard. Mm-hmm. You know, the like things that made me different didn't uh, didn't worry me. I thought that they were cool. But then in fifth or sixth grade, I broke that tooth on a on a swing set, and I had it capped. And from that point on, you know, this tooth I had. I'd banged out a couple of times already from that point on. I, I started to be a little bit insecure about my smile because this tooth didn't, this front tooth didn't belong to me. It was a strange. Right. And so I wasn't a hundred percent sure when I, when I smiled really big, whether or not that tooth would stand out as a, a foreign invader. (laughs) So I started smiling more. I started, you know, smiling with a closed mouth and this tooth has been through many, uh, iterations and, and at, at at a point there when I was about 40, I knocked it out completely. And ever since then, whatever is in that tooth space has been just glued in there just like a, like a full on fake tooth mm-hmm. glued in with super glue. And so I'm really self-conscious about it. I don't like to, I don't like to smile with an open mouth and, <clears throat> and three decades of drinking coffee and two decades of smoking cigarettes have made, you know, all of my teeth kind of not, they don't, they're not like a double mint gum commercial. Right. I'm not proud of them. And so, yeah, now when I, even when I feel big emotion, like when I feel like smiling, I stop myself because I'm embarrassed. And, uh, and, and knowing that that's knowing how much, a big smile improves your overall emotional 
well-being or, you know, just a big right. smile even once a day. It's like it, it, it's so healthy. I'm conscious of, uh, that I'm, that I'm depriving myself of, of, um, access to, to small joy. But I don't know what to do. I mean, I suppose I could walk around the house when I'm all by myself and smile, big smiles. Have you ever tried it? No. No? No, I haven't. And I don't know what would happen. Like, okay, let me ask you a question. When you're watching, when you're sitting there watching something (laughs) like funny, like a movie or a comedy on TV, are you the kind of guy like slap your knee and laugh out loud and cackle or big smile on your face? Or do you just, do you just watch and observe when you're watching something? Every, it's, it's not that it happens that infrequently. I will see something online. It's not often like a video. It's more often a, a, uh, like a, like a comic panel or a, or a certain, a certain style of meme that will make me laugh and, and, a, and a true laugh, like a, like a sustained laugh where I'm laughing and, and gasping. Uh, but that almost always happens when I'm alone. I don't, I don't normally find myself in situations where I'm in a group of people and, and, and brought to that kind of, of laughter. And, you know, I know a lot of funny people and I spend a lot of time with people who sit around trying to make each other laugh. Um, and I enjoy that very much. And I like, you know, I like to laugh. I like to, I like to give a hearty laugh. I like to, I like, but is that for you or is it for the benefit of the person who is making the joke or with you observing the same thing, wondering, because John, this is something I go through a lot. I, and I thought I was the only one to do it. But if there's something like for me to actually laugh out loud, to not to necessarily another person, because like if you and I are talking and you're telling me a funny story, I'm, I'm going to laugh. But if I'm watching something on TV that's funny, unless it's extraordinarily funny, I won't have any observable reaction. You would think I was watching something on the Nuremberg trials or something. You would have no idea that I was even entertained. Not that I would look bored, but I won't, I wouldn't necessarily be laughing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily think to laugh out loud unless I'm watching with somebody who I know intuitively is expecting me to have a reaction. For example, my, one of my kids. So if we're watching something together and something funny happens, they're going to laugh out loud. And if I don't participate in that, the impression that they'll have is, oh, what's wrong, dad? You're not laughing. That wasn't that funny. Didn't you think it was funny? And I want to reinforce as much as possible their capacity to enjoy their life and laugh at the world and have fun. So I will... Make, make a conscious effort to emote more around my kids or around other people in social situations. And 
and and so it's it's a for me a lot of that is a social thing like i know that i'm expected to laugh or expected to react in some way to something so i better do that but i wouldn't do that if i was by myself i wouldn't do that if i was alone or if the person that i was watching with who was an adult understood that Dan doesn't really laugh at stuff unless it's extraordinarily funny or something, you know, but I understand there's that, that it's almost like an inverse self-consciousness. You don't want to smile big because you've got a thing with your tooth. I need to laugh out loud or have a bigger reaction than I might naturally be feeling because I want other people not to think that I'm, uh, down in the dumps or something when I'm enjoying it just as much as they are. I just, that, that isn't a natural reaction for me. And I thought I was alone in this. And I remember I was like a teenager when I was reading something, I don't know if it was about Steve Martin or one of my comedic heroes and the person who had interviewed him made a comment. They had done a lot of interviews with comedians. I don't aspire to, or think I am a comedian, but what the authors of this article said, what he said was he he had made an uh, observation over the years of working with and interviewing comedians that oftentimes they don't laugh. They don't laugh when they're watching someone else's act. They don't laugh when there's a funny bit in a movie. They don't laugh when someone makes a joke except out of politeness. Um, and maybe it's because they're studying it or maybe it's because they thought of it themselves or who knows what it is. But it's not a natural thing for many comedians. I'm sure there's this is a, a segment of the population. But they don't tend to laugh as much. But that doesn't mean that they don't fully appreciate it. Or maybe they appreciate it better than I ever would because they're comedians. They get it, you know. But I don't know. Like, it's never... I'm not, like, I don't act out emotionally a lot. But it's also not like I'm like a like a bored person who's just sitting there that you can't tell what I'm thinking. Like you can tell what I'm thinking, but you know what I mean? Like, is that, is that, uh, does that make any sense at all? Yeah, it does. And, and, um, like if you I met think- me and if, 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 if a listener came up to me and was like, Hey Dan, I wouldn't be like, Hey, nice to meet you. Yeah. Right. Let's go get a coffee. Uh huh. It's not like that. Like I'm, I, I would sound just like this, like, just like we're talking right now. But if we sat down and watched a funny movie, I wouldn't be the guy in the seat next to you cracking up like, oh, could you believe this is the thing that just happened? I, right. Almost never. No, I, and I think that, I think that in my, I, I had a very formative uh, moment one time, probably 10 years ago. I was up on stage doing a, uh, I don't, I don't remember whether I was hosting a thing or I was a guest on a thing, but I was, you know, I was cracking wise. I was making, making jokes and the audience is laughing. And in the back of the room, I hear, ha, 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 And it was Eugene Merman. And you could tell it was Eugene because he has a very distinctive laugh and he laughs and in the course of He's his the, own. He's the Russian comedian, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He laughs in the course of, of his, 
his act and in his daily life uh, enough that that it's just it's just very obviously Eugene in the back of the room. And as someone on stage, to hear Eugene laughing so appreciatively and so unselfconsciously mm-hmm. from the back of the room was it was a tremendous gift to me. Yeah, I bet. We're on stage at that at that point. I felt like um I felt like wow, I'm killing it. And 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 because I'm making Eugene Merman laugh. And I feel like everyone else in the room also felt like um they'd been given permission to laugh harder. You know, it was a cool room. It was a room full of very cool kids. And Eugene is so beloved and so, and and in a way like uh, so free with a certain kind of, of um, uh, openness that, Anyway, it just it struck me to not be greedy with my own laughter and my own appreciation of my friends when they were doing a show, when they were doing good on stage. And so I I so I loosened up. And I don't do like a performance laugh. I don't sit in the back of the room and go, "Ha ha ha ha, yes." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I realized that that I was doing no one a favor by sitting at the back of the room while my friend or anybody was up on stage doing like funny work. I wasn't doing them a favor by stifling my laugh by sitting right. in the back and going like, <laughs> and so I I did untether my laugh. Um. Because, because I felt like it was a way of, of showing appreciation or honoring my, uh, uh, people that I liked. And then once I did, and I realized I could just sit in the back and be like, ha, um, I liked it. It felt better. It felt like a, it felt better. And, um, and it was, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel false. It doesn't feel unnecessary. It's not drawing attention to me. It's drawing attention to the, to the, the person that is, that's engendering that applause. And I dated a girl, uh, years ago that had a, a very, very loud performative laugh where there'd be a group of 10 people sitting around a table in a restaurant and she would just, you know, she was like, ha, 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 ha. You know, I can't even describe her laugh, but it was yeah. just a big donkey laugh. And I did feel self-conscious then. Um, there, you know, I, I knew enough not to be like, honey, can you tone it down a little bit? But, but it, it felt like a laugh that was, that was out of scale. 
No one else was laughing like that. There wasn't really anything even that funny happening. It was just a big, broad laugh. And and uh, honestly, I don't I don't know whether it, that was. She reacted that way all the time, so I don't know if the, if if that was just her natural. Uh, experience, but she was such a performer in every mm-hmm. other. Right, you couldn't tell that you couldn't tell the difference. It just felt a little bit like uh, like an attention calling laugh right. rather than one that was that was meant to 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 show praise or to, to uh, or to praise mm-hmm. performer and 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 I'm I'm like that now with things that don't make me laugh too I'm I'm vocal in my appreciation of. If somebody says something on stage that's meaningful, I will, I'll do a kind of gospel choir a little bit and 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 say things out loud like "yes" or whatever, approve in a way. Because when when you're on stage a lot and you're greeted with a room that doesn't respond to you, that doesn't laugh at the laugh moments and gasp at the gasp moments it just makes it harder it makes it's harder work than if you say something and you hear even a rustle of of people sitting back in their chair or leaning forward like that that stuff is um that's reassuring when you're performing oh definitely so i give so i give that energy now as a as as a um not 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 fake. I don't do it if I don't feel it, but but uh, I do it as part of the the compact, the the social compact. <coughs> I think that's fair. I think everyone does that. And it's like I think the the term social compact is the right one. Because there is part of social interacting that says you're going to do things that you might not do if you were alone. Well, good. You know, we, we want that, right? But, you know, I feel like there's also, I've given a lot of talks and a lot of, you know, um, like keynotes and things like that. And I noticed that you know, I, one of my first jobs out of college was to do what we used to call seminars. My, my full-time job was making CBTs, which we used to, uh, used to, I guess CBT stands for different things now, but back then it was stood for computer-based training. So basically we were making essentially what we would just think of today as screencasts, but we didn't have screencasting technology back then. So we actually built applications that would like do like you would take. So if you were teaching somebody Microsoft word, you would have essentially a screenshot of your desktop. Then you would launch Microsoft words. Then we take another screenshot of word like launching and then another screenshot of word open on the screen And you would take all these screenshots and then you would automate them with this application, which I think was called automator. And you would like have a mouse cursor and you would say, move this image, which is actually a fake mouse cursor from here to here and make it look like you've clicked on something. And then you'd have like a voiceover and all this other crap. It was the most painful. I don't even want to talk about it. I've said too much, but we would, this was like my job. But then the other part of my job was, 
building courses around this kind of training. So then I would go and like, they'd fly me out to some city and I'd be in some, you know, average to below average hotel. And then there'd be one of those conference rooms in the hotel. And then like a few hundred people would come into the room and it'd be me standing at the front of the class, answering questions for people and teaching this course. And I'd say, okay, today we're going to, you know, like, I'm going to teach you like Microsoft office. Like I'm going to teach you. And like in, in, in two hours, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to like, know Microsoft office. Like you're going to know like how to mail merge in word and, you know, like import an Excel spreadsheet into your word document, like a pro, like no you are going, John, you are going to be able to get a job that says you must know Microsoft office to get this job. Oh, That's going to be you. I can't wait. And so then they, the, the biggest course, the popular one was like my internet course. I had hundreds of people lining up every month to take this course all around the globe. It was amazing because I explained to them like, what is the internet and like how you can use the internet for your like idea or business. And like, I, like I explained like HTTP and what that meant and how that was different from FTP. Like people were, they were obtaining true knowledge in these things. Wow. I wish I'd taken that class. You, you could have been in the class, but I'll tell you, as I get started to do that, and then later on in life, giving more and more talks, the one thing that started to happen was people would bring their computers with them. And there was a point in time where having your computer open during a talk meant you didn't care. You didn't give a damn about what the person was saying. You right. weren't paying attention. You were working on something else that was more important. And then slowly, no, that's how people take notes. And right. then no, people are live blogging what you're saying, even though they haven't looked up at you once. They haven't made eye contact with you when you're trying to make eye contact with them. They're just like listening and processing and sharing it. They might be blogging or live streaming it or who knows what they're doing, but they're fully engaged. They're just happen to be staring down at their screen. And so it got to the point where every time that I would be giving a talk, everybody's laptop was open. Everybody was staring at their screen. They'd once in a while kind of like glance back up at, okay, now I'm back down on my screen. And at first this infuriated me because I was like, you guys paid money and I'm here. Like I flew here from another city to talk about this stuff to you guys. And you're not even looking up. And I realized, no, this is just what nerds do. And I realized I did that a lot at conferences too. And I had to stop, but it's weird because that, that kind of eye contact that you get, that interaction that you get hearing someone in the back of the room laughing, if you make a joke, like that's what you as the guy up on stage really, really, really needs. So I totally, I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying where like you're not doing them any favors by, you know, chuckling to yourself quietly in the back of the room. It, it does matter. And that compact that you have as an attendee of something is like, look up, look at the person, you know, like, I appreciate that you're like live tweeting what I'm saying, but I would rather you just be here with me in the room and look up here <coughs> and pre pretend you care and show you care, you know? Yeah, it's 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 that whole world of um, of treating performers like they're on a like they're on a TV. I I uh, 
and it, and it, it's not it's not a modern problem. I don't think necessarily. I mean, you don't see a lot of pictures of of uh, people in the 1960s at a concert spending the whole concert looking down at their fingernails, but <laughs> right or reading a newspaper, right or holding a holding a, a, a um their uh, Faulkner uh, novel in their <laughs> hand and looking at reading that instead of looking at the people on stage. And you know, like everybody, everybody listening to this right now, John, I'm sure every one of them here has checked their phone and looked at Twitter once or twice while they were doing something else. We can't, you know, it's hard to not do that kind of thing. Well, last night I was, sitting here with my daughter's mother and I was working on a thing and I said, let me read this to you. And I started to read this thing I was working on and about three quarters of the way through it, she looked down at her computer, her laptop yeah, and continued to look at her laptop until I was done reading it. And when I got to the end, I said, you were looking at the, your computer for the last third of it. And she said, no, 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 I was listening. I was just, and I said, so uh, what did I say? Hmm. And she said, oh, could you read me the last third of it? And I said, no, I'm not going no, to. No, right? Like, it's gone. It's gone. Like I was asking for your contribution. I was asking for you to listen to what I was saying. And uh, for like two minutes, <laughs> I wanted you to hear a thing I was working on and give me your feelings about it. And you couldn't keep, you couldn't close your laptop. And, and because your laptop was open, you couldn't help yourself, but look down at it. And as soon as you looked down at it, you were reading, or at least if you thought you were, if you thought you were giving me your attention, clearly you weren't. And, uh, it's a constant struggle now. I, anytime I hear my daughter come into the room, I put my phone down, but Sometimes she'll come in the room and then she'll go out of the room and then she'll come back in the room and go out of the room. And I, and I'm, you know, as soon as she leaves the room, I pick my phone up and then when she comes back in, I put it down and I don't know whether she's aware of me putting, picking up my phone and putting it down. But even that, uh, my attention's divided. Our attention is divided. So divided now all the time, divided. And, and it's not doing anyone any favors. It's not doing your, the people for whom you're their audience. And like, I'm my daughter's audience. That's right. That's one of my main jobs just to be her audience. And if I'm not only if I'm looking at my phone, but if I'm thinking about my phone, even if I don't have it in front of me, I'm not her audience at that mm-hmm. point. I'm right. I'm elsewhere. Right. Even and, even if you're five percent elsewhere, right? Right. But 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 I still like I've been struggling with it as as a lot of us have. But I mean, actively actively struggling to be present, be present, be present, and it's so hard. I mean, I. It is for, hard. For months we've been talking about this, all the different ways to not have your phone up, not be on your computer. Uh, I went to see that movie Apollo 11, which was 
a documentary about the moon launch. Yeah. That is just footage from the time. Um, there's no narrator. It's not, I mean, the, it, the only narrator really is Walter Cronkite. <laughs> <coughs> and it's not really cut together with modern footage. It's just footage from the summer of 1969. Right. And the first third or maybe even the first, yeah, the first third of the movie is stuff, footage from Cape Canaveral as they're moving the Saturn V out to the platform and a lot of footage of the crowds of people that had gathered to watch the launch and uh, just stuff around Mission Control. So much footage from inside Mission Control and from the, um, you know, the astronaut ready room and all this stuff. Right. And you're just so struck by it's wonderful footage of the, of the people of the time. And this was, I was nine months old when the moon launch happened. And so this is, these are the people of my life. These are the, this is what people looked like when I came into the world and right. And, um, my era, you know, and it's just, it's stunning to see what the world looked like then. And it, and it looked great. It just looks wonderful to be transported to that time, even for a little while. And of course, no one is looking at their phone, but also like, there's a feeling of, I don't know. There's a feeling of, uh, I, I, I'll stop short of describing it. It's just uh, there is a feeling to the world that mm. isn't true now, that doesn't exist now. If I you know exactly a, what you're talking about. Yeah. If you went to a big event where there were 100,000 people all gathered to witness a space launch or a or see some big thing, and you had cameras just panning through the crowds – the the world that is communicated now is is incalculable incalculably different and i and i am because i've lived within it i struggle to know exactly how it's different right uh, in, in a profound way i mean it's different in in obvious ways people look different and they have different clothes on and they're doing different things but there's something else that's that's changed forever and and I think for not for better and I don't and I don't know how to describe it you know and I think there are a lot of voices in the world that would look at those pictures from 1969 and compare them to pictures of now and and praise the fact that there's more diversity now. Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think there is necessarily any more diversity now. I think there is a lot more performance of diversity. There's a lot more, um, surface diversity, if you will, like, um, 
the part of diversity that doesn't really matter that much, which is the diversity of appearance, the diversity of presentation. I don't think there's any more diversity because I think diversity is not a thing that ebbs and flows, right? And and there there are people of all races, colors, and creeds in this crowd. It's a, just a cross-section of who's in Florida in 1969. Everybody wants to see the moon launch. And we have a tendency in our contemporary world to think that in 1969, no one was invited but white men. And it's just not true. Like, everybody was living in the world then, too. And there were there were a lot of problems. I don't certainly don't need to be lectured about what um, – what the problems in 1969 were relative to what they are now. But I think we have that, we have a, we have the tendency to prejudice the future or prejudice the present over the past and to imagine that in 1969, nobody was aware of, or, or everyone was prejudiced or, um, or there was a baked in conformity that was 100% negative. You know, that I think we think now that conformity, and we've spent 40 years telling ourselves this, that conformity is has a negative influence. Or conformity is bad. It's intrinsically bad. It intrinsically mm-hmm. suppresses diversity. It suppresses freedom. It... Um, it closets people. It uh, it negates people. Conformity does. That is our contemporary prejudice, and it's a product of the the thinking of the sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties. The the uh, the habits right of our, our our intellectual habits and our self reinforcing mentalities right that casual friday was a great leap forward in terms of freedom and personal uh, uh liberation but you look back at the at that footage and you and there is a lot of conformity but you don't get any feeling and I, you know, I lived in those times, so I know, like, there were, there were um, expectations. And, and again, I'm anticipating those, I'm anticipating the emails and the letters, or I'm, I'm anticipating the people listening to this program and saying, well, that's easy for you to say, because you're not mm-hmm. a, uh, like a Hispanic trans woman. But that's not true. You know, it's not true that it's easy for me to say, and it's not true that I don't know what it's like or understand because that is the power of empathy. You can, the power of empathy, one of the primary powers of human beings is that you can empathize with somebody that where you have not walked a mile in their shoes. Right. And that, and that is another contemporary prejudice, the idea that if you are not a kind of person, you cannot understand their experience. That's that, you know, the, the criticism of social anthropology or whatever, the, 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 the modern idea that 
um, somehow human beings do not have that primary skill, which is the skill to read a book and feel, truly feel the experience of the person writing it. It's why we fucking write. It's why we tell stories to, to share the experience and, and not just as a, not, you're not just voyeuristically experiencing it. You're actually able to truly experience someone else. Anyway, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a moving, it was moving to me. And the, the Apollo 11, the, the, the second half of it or the second two thirds of it, where they're just describing the trip to the moon and back. It's interesting to watch the real footage and to listen to mission control and, and so forth. But we've seen that dramatized a lot. The actual trip to the moon and back. What you couldn't what you couldn't duplicate is that raw footage of just people in the, in their world, people with their full attention on a thing on and mm. on each other. Like they're just walking around buying hot dogs, <laughs> laying their picnic blankets out, listening to music. Uh, and, and they're there, you know, they're really there in a way that if you went to Coachella now or you went to uh, or you went to a rocket launch now, people would be less present somehow. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. We would like to say thank you to Keeps because losing your hair sucks. This is just a fact. And two out of three guys will experience hair loss by the time they're 35. Now, Keeps is the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair that you have. It has FDA-approved products. These things used to cost so much money, but now, thanks to Keeps, they're finally inexpensive and they're easy to get. For five minutes now, and starting at just 10 bucks per month, you will never have to worry about hair loss again. It's super easy. Like I said, it takes less than five minutes. You just answer a few questions. Yes, you snap a couple photos of your hair, and a licensed physician reviews the information online, and then they recommend the right treatment for you based on what's going on with you. Because not every single solution is right for every single person, right? And then it gets shipped right to your door every three months. Uh, Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved uh, hair loss products out there. Some of you have probably tried them before, but you've probably never gotten them uh, at this price. It's only $10 uh, to $35 a month, depending on what you get and how much you need. And uh, you can get your first month for free. What a nice deal, huh? And they made a special URL, keeps.com, K-E-E-P-S, keeps.com slash roadwork, keeps.com slash roadwork, and you'll get a free month. So thanks very much to Keeps for making this show possible. And, you know, and I think part of that has to do with exposure to so many different things. You know, there's nothing about the human condition that said that we should know as many people as we know, or that we should be able to travel as much as we travel, or that we should have this constant source of information, whether it's words or pictures or texts or whatever, coming at us all the time. This is not how we were meant to be as human beings. And it's not a natural state for us to be. And it, it is very likely a harmful uh, state for us to be in. 
I think a lot of people realize that, but it doesn't, you know, we still do it. But like, yeah, what's that thing? There's some name for it. I always forget it. And then it comes to me as soon as we're done talking about it. But it says like, you can only know a certain number of people. You can only remember a certain number of people. Um, there's a, there's an equation Dunbar's number. That's what it's called. Dunbar's, Dunbar's number. number, a suggested cognitive limit to the number of people with whom one can maintain stable social relationships, relationships in which an individual knows who each person is and how each person relates to every other person. This number was first proposed in the 90s by British anthropologist Robin Dunbar, who found a correlation between primate brain size and average social group size. Huh. By using the average human brain size and extrapolating from the results of primates, he proposed that humans can comfortably maintain only 150 stable relationships. Dunbar explained it informally as the number of people you would not feel embarrassed <coughs> about joining about joining uninvited for a drink if you happen to bump into them in a bar. Proponents assert that numbers larger than this generally require more restrictive rules, laws, and enforced norms to maintain a stable, cohesive group. It's been proposed to lie between 100 and 250 with a commonly used value of 150. Dunbar's number states the number of people one knows and keeps social contact with, and it does not include the number of people known personally with a ceased social relationship, nor people just generally known with a lack of persistent social relationship, etc. Um, whether that number is real or not, it's interesting. Do you know 150 people? I... I doubt that I know 150 people. I mean, I would think that number would be much, much smaller for most people. I think it would be too. And, but the number of, you know, like it's, our phones make it so easy to have constant entertainment. And you and I are plenty old enough to remember what it was like before phones as adults before phones, you know, I mean, I, I remember pagers i remember having pagers for my job and like you'd get the page and then oh no it said 911 i better go and like you'd go to a phone and then you'd call the person that had paged you and you know i mean i vividly remember not just oh when i was a kid we didn't have phones no like i was a functional adult in the world working a job where there were no phones except the one that was on your desk that you used to call someone too far away to go and talk to in person. And now there are people whose entire social lives happen over the phone or at the very least are initiated over the phone. I know plenty of people whose idea of a, a wonderful evening would be to chat with their friends on their phone while they watch Netflix alone in their house. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying it's a different world. It's a completely different kind of place now. And the norms that we have are, are constantly being are re-established and redefined. And like I said, I'm not one of those people that's, oh my God, I can't believe what this has come to. No, it's fine. Like, yeah, we might look at our iPads or our phones now while we sit and eat breakfast. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was reading the newspaper. You were still reading something. It's still looking at something. It's just now that phone is with us everywhere. And instead of being one thing that's printed one time per day or maybe twice, that it's always up to date. There's always something new. There's always something to put your attention on. And there is definitely that uh, FOMA, 
fear of missing out, you know, that if you don't pay attention to it, well, you're going to be left behind. And I've, I do not spend very much time on Twitter anymore. And I'm so much better off for it. I've never used Facebook. I have a Facebook account, I think, um, that I've used to log into other services that required it. But I'm very, I mean, I'll go on Twitter. I'll tweet a couple things. If I think it's something funny to say and no one's around in person to say it, I might say it on Twitter. But I'm not like having conversations really with people on Twitter anymore. I'm not trying to engage in that way. So... I'm much better off for that. I don't think about it. I don't miss it when it's not there. I do look at Instagram, but I've pretty much cut that off too. I'll look at that maybe once a day now. And I'm much better off for it. And I find that like reading just one thing and not multitasking and not switching around is really nice. I have a friend who was just writing an article. He written an article on his website where he was saying that he's actually gone to an even more extreme where he has taken things like email applications off of his computer, all social media off of his computer, everything off of his computer. Yeah. And, and because he, he is thinking of the computer as it is a tool. So instead of going into the computer and saying, okay, computer, show me stuff, show me the world. Show me the world, entertain me, give me stuff to do, find interesting things. I'll go find some interesting things to do. Instead, he's treating it the way that, um, that, that we might treat uh, a toolbox. You wouldn't just go and stand by your toolbox and open up the drawer. Uh, and, and I'm talking about one of the big snap-on ones, the red ones with the nice drawers and the, you know, the padded inside. You wouldn't just go to stand in front of that and just open up the drawer and say, all right, uh, hammer, let's go find something to beat on. You, you would say, I'm going to build a shelf. I need a hammer to do that. I'm going to go get the hammer out of the toolbox. I'm going to use it. When I'm done, it's going back. But what do you need and a computer for? What do you, what is it a tool? What is it a tool to do anymore? I mean, you are building codes, I guess, to right, right, put right. Uh, podcasts on the interwebs. But what yeah. do I need a computer for to to write? I I barely write anymore. I mean, uh, all I do is use a computer to. I mean, to podcast. Show you the world. Right. Yeah. Show me the world. Show me the meaning of the world. That was a little bit out of tune, but I like that. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. 